Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Aristotelian Society. We, um, it's a great pleasure tonight to welcome Beate Rusler from uh, the University of Amsterdam, who's going to talk to us on the subject of uh, privacy as a human right. Thank you very much. It's a real honor to be here, to um, being invited to the Aristotelian Society. So um, thanks very much. And um, I, I've got a handout, which will be helpful, I hope. Uh, and also, I think I'm going to talk for about 45 minutes. Um, okay. Um, these days, the right to privacy, I feel a little defensive about saying de privacy in the UK. I know I should say privacy, but it's very hard to get used to it if you're uh, used to saying privacy, so please uh, bear with me. Um, these days, the right to privacy seems to occupy an entirely natural place, not only within the structure of human rights, but also, especially in Europe, within national constitutions and legislation more generally. This is especially true of the right to what is known as informational privacy, which has been a particular object of legal attention over the past several years, and for many years now there has been an established jurisprudence on the right to privacy coming from the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. At the same time, there have been both conceptual and normative criticisms of the right to privacy, which held it to be either internally inconsistent or normatively superfluous. We can distinguish between two basic strands of criticism. On the one side, there are those who argue that there's no unified concept to be found here since all aspects of an alleged right to privacy can be reduced to other rights and since the concept is far too heterogeneous to denote a single right. Um, Judith Travis Thompson and Raymond Goyes are both well known for this type of criticism of the concept of privacy. On the other side, we find a feminist critique that casts suspicion not only on the general idea of human rights, taking it to be expressive of a male bias, but more specifically and centrally on the right to privacy, insofar as such a right is sought to sanction the patriarchal and repressive distinction between a public and a private space, consigning women to the private domain in which men are traditionally free to act as they please. I think that both criticism of the idea of privacy should be taken very seriously, but I also think that neither of them is devastating to the idea of a right to privacy. In what follows, I want to argue for two claims. First, that it's possible to articulate a systematic normative conception of privacy, which explains and supports a general right to privacy. And second, that the right to privacy lies at the very heart of a human right to freedom and autonomy. Without reference to a right to privacy, many other rights to freedom are not realizable. Thus, what I will argue is that the right to privacy, far from being reducible to other rights or being detrimental to the rights and needs of women, it occupies a central place on the list of human rights. In arguing for these conclusions, I want to show that the different normative dimensions of privacy are important to human rights discourse because they play an essential role in identifying certain human rights violations and therefore in protecting human rights. The philosophical debate over the ethics of privacy can thus be instructive for the debate about human rights. To bring out this connection, I will both develop a normative conception of privacy and its different dimensions 
and take a closer look at the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights by considering some examples. The goal here is to understand what role the right to privacy plays in the court's decisions and to ask how the court's interpretation of this right fits with the normative structure of the concept of privacy. I will begin by briefly discussing the criticism of the concept of privacy, or rather of the possibility of developing a unified and normatively cogent conception of privacy. To do so, I will provide brief sketches of Thompson's and Goy's critical approaches and respond to these criticisms by showing how it is possible to develop a normative conception of privacy that is not vulnerable to them. In a second step, I turn to privacy as a human right. Here I will start by engaging with the feminist critique of the idea of human rights to privacy, and I will then go on to present the various existing formulations of a human right to privacy and consider the salient differences between them. In the third part of my paper, I will attend in some more detail to at least a few instances of the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights, interpreting them with the aim of finding out in which contexts the right to privacy plays or should play a role and what this means for the idea of privacy. Building on the work of legal scholars, my aim is to discuss and criticize the various normative principles underlying the court's decisions, and also that it's precisely in order to overcome the traditional liberal idea of having clearly separable private and public spheres that we need the human right to privacy. So let me begin by considering the <coughs> fundamental critique of a unified and basic conception of privacy. It's well known that the earliest and most radical version of this critique was offered by Judith Jarvis Thompson. It can be summarized as follows. The right to privacy is not really one right. It's actually a bundle of rights, she says. The concept of privacy is far too heterogeneous for there to be a single, consistent, and meaningful right to it. Instead, the right to property and the right over one's person um, the right not to be subject to eavesdropping, the right to keep my belongings out of view, um, and the right not to be harmed, all pertain to various different aspects of privacy and cannot all be unified into a single right. Um, she, it's a little unfair to be so short about Judith Jarvis Thompson. As you all know, she's a very sharp thinker. But anyway, um, I just use her a little bit. Raymond Goy seconds Thomas, uh, Thompson's line of criticism, but adds to it a more fundamental consideration. The very distinction between private and public, he argues, already relies on the assumption that there's a unified liberal distinction that is politically set in stone and uncontested. But this assumption, he continues, plays not only a mistaken conception of the dis displays not only a mistaken conception of the distinction between public and private, but also a mistaken conception of politics. In real politics, all distinctions and all values are contested, so that the liberal distinction is illusory and ideological. According to Goyce, this becomes apparent only once one recognizes the deep heterogeneity of privacy and the plurality of very different values attached to its various meanings. Now, Goyce and Thompson are surely right to assert that the distinction between a private sphere and a public sphere is very multifaceted. But already in the first round of rejoinders to Thompson, Thomas Scanlon made it clear that it's nevertheless possible to identify a unifying idea, a common foundation for the different usages and meanings of privacy. 
This foundation, according to Scanlon, is the interest we have in being able to be free from certain kinds of intrusion. Since then, various conceptions have been developed that all intend, indeed do rely on the idea of freedom or autonomy as their foundational and unifying concept. The thought is that we each want to be free from different kinds of intrusion because each of us aims to live an autonomous life and there are several different respects in which the protection of privacy is needed for the realization of freedom or autonomy. Thomas Scanlon, Anita Allen, Jeff Ryman, Jean Cohn, and even James Griffin, with his concept of normative agency, all defend a similar account in this respect. On one side, there's a basic normative principle, such as freedom or autonomy. On the other side, there are multiple aspects or dimensions of privacy in regard to which freedom can be curtailed or threatened by intrusion. <coughs> To be able to reject Thompson and Goy's critiques of a unified conception of privacy, we need to show that this basic idea is compatible with the heterogeneous meanings and different cultural interpretations of privacy. And what I would like to show is that it's precisely a conception of privacy which is linked to the ideas of autonomy and freedom that is indeed best suited to take heterogeneous meanings and cultural differences into account. There is a further reason why we need to recognize a unified normative idea underlying the different meanings of privacy. When a practice develops and its norms change, we need to analyze what constitutes the normative foundation of privacy, what exactly is protected by the right to privacy, how its contexts are subject to change, and why we value privacy in these different contexts in the first place. Any normative conception of privacy needs to be able to accommodate new developments and contexts regarding social norms of privacy. Social norms, I mean like legal norms, moral norms, just conventional norms. Um, and conversely, these new developments may of course give rise to new interpretations of what privacy means. So what does it mean to be free from intrusions in various different respects? It means that a person is capable of controlling and authorized to control others' access to herself, for example, to her data, her residence, her decisions, and her ways of acting. This access may be understood in a metaphorical or symbolic sense, for instance, when what is at issue is another person's ability to object to certain decisions. But the term may, may also apply quite literally regarding access to a set of data or an apartment. In this way, the meaning of privacy is linked to the freedom from intrusion in the very general sense of having control over others' access to one's own person. It is because of this connection that we take privacy to be valuable and worthy of protection. On this basis, we can proceed to connect the various aspects of privacy to different respects in which privacy should be protected. Let me distinguish between three such respects or dimensions which are expressive of distinct aspects of privacy and its connection with autonomy. These are respects in which privacy must be protected in order for autonomy to be possible. First, when the object of protection is in fact that the privacy of a residence or a room, or more generally, the privacy of a physical space, it makes sense to speak of local or domestic privacy. What is at issue here is the protection of a backstage area that is needed so that persons, all persons, 
can retreat there and rest from performing their various social roles. This local or domestic privacy is what people usually mention first when they speak of privacy or of private life, and it's often helped to possess intrinsic value so that individual autonomy is not invoked at all. It's then quite natural to assume that privacy simply consists in this dimension. But that assumption is mistaken. Local privacy is just one among different dimensions of privacy. The second dimension of privacy can be called decisional privacy. It concerns private decisions and actions, who to live with, what career to pursue, which church to join, or what clothes to wear. It is clear that this dimension of privacy extends into the public realm. It is therefore a serious misconception to conceive of privacy exclusively in spatial terms. Especially in the feminist literature of the past two decades, it has often been pointed out that it's possible and necessary that the notion of privacy be given a feminist reinterpretation so as to overcome the metaphor of space and to reveal the different dimensions of privacy. Third, the protection of informational privacy aims at limiting the amount of information about a person that others um, have or are able to obtain. We can live autonomous lives only if we can be certain that it's more or less up to us who has what kind of knowledge about us. Of course, it's not always up to us, but we have reasonable expectations what other people know about us, and these reasonable expectations are usually quite well-grounded, used to be quite well-grounded. That is, in the words of Germany's Federal Constitutional Court, only if we are protected in our informational self-determination are we uh, able to live an autonomous life. Informational privacy pertains to all sorts of data and information, including information possessed by friends, acquaintances and strangers, as well as by institutions. This dimension of privacy, too, is clearly not restricted <coughs> to any particular space, but must be safeguarded across the various public contexts which we inhabit. To be sure, these distinctions among different dimensions of privacy are not clear-cut, but admit of overlaps. Moreover, these three dimensions of individual privacy protect not only individuals and are valuable not only to individuals, they protect individuals within relationships, and these relationships themselves, as social practices, would not be possible without such protection. <coughs> this defense of a systematic normative conception of privacy does not suffice to defeat the critique developed by Thompson and Goyes, but it shows in what direction we need to look. It is at least intelligible and possible to develop a unified conception of privacy based on the value of freedom and autonomy, which will allow us to account for the diverse aspects and contexts of privacy. Let me now, in the following step, take a closer look at the human right to privacy, at the feminist critique and at the European Court's jurisprudence. It is well known that human rights are contest were contested from the very beginning with regard to the possibility and mode of their justification and thus their validity, with regard to their scope, with regard to their meaning or interpretation. At the same time, we can observe that there is now an almost worldwide consensus regarding the existence of human rights. This does not mean that human rights have, not, have now been realized, as we all know, around the globe, but it means that states are forced to embrace human rights at least as a matter of protocol. Um, human rights 
I mean, questions like uh, whether human rights are moral rights, subjective rights, naturalized, uh, natural rights, and so on, these are all cont uh, contested. And I'm, I, I thought I, I would have to say something about that, but then I realized I don't have to, because no matter what sort of justification or what grounding you have for human rights, if you accept that there is something like the list of human rights or the European Convention for Human Rights, then you ha can say or should say something about the jurisprudence of the court and the principles the jurisprudence is based on. So no matter what you think about justifications, do you think these are moral rights or do you think no, it's no use to, you know, it's not plausible to think about them as moral rights, only about political rights and not even the question how many rights there are is relevant to what I'm going to say. And I'm open to discuss this in the discussion time um, because privacy belongs to the first group of rights. It's not one of the social rights, it's one of the basic freedom rights. Um, so I'll just proceed as though we had solved all the problems of justification and um, uh, scope. Over time, the idea of human rights has steadily expanded, beginning with negative rights to liberty and progressively coming to encompass rights to political participation, social claim, ri claim rights, and finally the substantive list of rights established by the United Nations in 1948. The right to privacy or to a private life represents one stage of this expansion. It was a completely novel entry in the catalogue contained in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and it is unusual in lacking any predecessors in state constitutions or basic laws. As Diggleman and Clyde have pointed out, the rights potential was dramatically underestimated at the time of its creation. Having apparently originated in a somewhat accidental manner, the right to privacy has since become one of the most important human rights. So the idea of a right to, protected, to a protected private life is thus encountered for the very first time in the 1948 Universal Declaration. Its Article 12 states, and I remind you of the formulations um, because I'm sure not everybody has it in their heads. Um, so it reads, no one shall be subjected to arbitrary interference with his privacy, family home or a family, home or correspondence, nor to attacks upon his honour and reputation. Everyone has a right to the protection of the law against such interference or attacks. That's Article 12 of the Universal Declaration. That's all there is. There's no second paragraph. And it includes, as you have noticed, honour and reputation. In the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights of 1966, we find a very similar formulation in Article 17. And it's got two paragraphs. I'll read them out. No one shall be subjected to arbitrary or unlawful interference with his privacy, family, home or correspondence, nor to unlawful attacks on his honour and reputation. Second, everyone has a right to the protection of the law against such interference or attacks. And finally, Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights of 1950 reads as follows. Everyone has a right to respect for his private and family life, his home and his correspondence. Second, there shall be no interference by a public authority with the exercise of this right except such as is, as is in accordance with the law and is necessary in a democratic society in the interests of national security, public safety or the economic well-being of the country for the prevention of disorder or crime, 
for the protection of health or morals, or for the protection of the rights and freedoms of others. These formulations differ in interesting ways. For instance, in contrast with the Universal Declaration, the European Convention lacks any reference to honor and reputation. And whereas the Universal Declaration requires states to protect privacy, family and home, the European Convention speaks more generally of private and family life. And it would be interesting, in fact, it is interesting to go into the differences, but I'll just put that before you to think about, um, because I'm interested in something different tonight. Uh, this general idea of a private life stated in the European Convention has been particularly influential in European jurisprudence, obviously. I mean, it's the European Convention. Thus, Bertjab Kaups writes that the most important binding international instrument in this field, the field of privacy, uh, is, the, um, is this Article 8. After many ratifications and decades of case law, I quote, the European Court of Human Rights created a powerful influence on securing a very wide and legally binding understanding of the notion of respect for private life, or simply the right to privacy. Before I attend to the court's jurisprudence, let me take a closer look at the feminist critique. There is an important connection between the general feminist critique of human rights, or more cautiously speaking, its critique of human rights discourse, and the feminist critique of the demarcation between private and public spheres. For human rights to freedom are traditionally thought of as rights that citizens have against the state, as negative rights, which prohibit state interference in certain areas of life. This seems to entail that the private sphere is exempt from criticism and that it constitutes the space in which the liberties protected by those negative rights can be exercised. Yet, grave violations of women's human rights take place precisely within this protected private sphere. Domestic violence, an unjust division of labor along gender lines, and oppressive cultural practices all seem to be exempt from criticism based on a human right to privacy once we have accepted this interpretation of the distinction between public and private. In order to interpret human rights from a feminist perspective as rights that are also held by women, the entire distinction between the private sphere and the public sphere first needs to be dismantled. This critique of the traditional liberal distinction is certainly well taken. And for many years now, feminist critics have rightly pointed out to the ideological nature of this distinction. But as I try to show above, endorsing this critique, which I do obviously, does not necessarily mean that the distinction has to be jettisoned altogether. Indeed, we can see that feminist theory since the 1980s has developed conception of privacy that conceive of the private sphere as protecting women and men in equal degrees. Thus, the distinction between dimensions of privacy outlined above accommodates precisely this feminist critique and builds on it. The family is no longer viewed as a pre-political <coughs> institution located entirely within the private sphere, and questions of sexual identity or of religious dress code, behave, dress code have to be understood as dimensions of the right to privacy lived in public space. Conceiving of the right to privacy in this way demonstrates that rights can always have an emancipatory dimension. The feminist critique need not be directed at their very nature as rights. 
to the contrary, the securing of equal rights has always played, I think, a fundamental part in the history of women's emancipation. Interestingly, the history of the case law regarding Article 8 of the European Convention shows that its provision of a right to privacy has not, in fact, led to the discrimination of women, at least not over the past several years. On the contrary, the relevant court rulings show how this right to a private life has contributed, or is at least capable of contributing, to emancipating women and securing their equal autonomy. Indeed, this right can be credited with serving as one of the starting points for the struggle for equal rights, even if the relevant jurisprudence is not always unambiguous and consistent. Against this background of the feminist critique and the normative conception of privacy outlined above, let me therefore turn to the discussion of some cases decided by the European Court of Human Rights, which invoke Article 8 of the Convention. Different legal scholars have made different proposals regarding the identity of the principles underlying this jurisprudence. Thus, Kirsty Hughes, for instance, writes, in its judgments, the court set out a number of general principles elaborating on the nature of the right. In doing so, it touches upon many of the arguments that have been advanced in privacy scholarship. For example, the court's references to physical and psychological integrity and the right to identity and personal development. And in a wide-ranging treatment of the jurisprudential role of Article 8, Nicole Moran suggests classifying the cases and judgments according to a schema containing three freedoms from namely the right to be free from interference with physical and psychological integrity, from unwanted access to and collection of information, and from serious environmental pollution, as well as certain freedoms too, the right to be free to develop one's personality and identity and to live one's life in the manner of one's choosing. This leaves us with a whole cluster of normative principles. While I want to build on these attempts at classifications, I will do so with a critical intent. For what interests me specifically is whether it is useful to interpret the court's decisions as applications of the normative conception of privacy and its different dimensions, which I outlined above. This jurisprudence has often been criticized, and I would like to find out whether these criticisms derive from a misleading or incomplete conception of privacy and whether we might advance by basing our criti critical assessment of the court's decisions on the normative conception of privacy and its different dimensions. This would mean attributing to the court not four or five different principles, but only one, individual autonomy or freedom, which is protected and enabled by the right to privacy in its different dimensions. This would also do justice to the feminist critique, since insisting on the local dimension of privacy is precisely not the same as endorsing the conception of privacy associated with a traditional spatial metaphor. The private sphere on my conception serves men and women equally. A further advantage of this greater simplicity regarding underlying principles lies in the fact that it would serve the interest of legal predictability by making it easier to interpret new cases whose resolution depends on the norms of privacy. We would then also have principled criteria for cases where the norms of privacy change because of changes in social reality, like, I mean, informational privacy 
the juris jurisprudence on information privacy has changed, of course, I mean, obviously, with the technology, uh, technological developments of the last 10, 20 years, and it's still uh, changing. So what I want to do in the following is to discuss some paradigmatic cases along with, along with the ensuing debates among legal scholars and assess the extent to which the proposed systematic conception of privacy may be able to help in giving efficacy to the human right to privacy. Let us have a look at the most frequently discussed and fiercely contested cases in this area. They include those concerned with questions of sexual identity, which also pertain to the right to develop one's own personality and identity, and those concerned with informational privacy, like wiretapping and surveillance. Beyond these types of cases, I will also discuss domestic violence as a special problem for the court's jurisprudence concerning Article 8. I will have to be rather brief, but I hope that the basic points will be evident <coughs> enough. What I'm interested in is the plausibility of linking these three groups of cases to the three normative dimensions of privacy. Let me begin with cases where the privacy of a person's sexual identity is at issue. A number of prominent cases brought before the court concerned domestic legislation by which homosexual conduct was prohibited or otherwise suppressed. One of the best known and most discussed cases is Dutchen versus United Kingdom, which resulted in a ruling that has occupied many legal scholars. The question to be settled by the court was, and I quote, whether the existence of criminal offences relating to homosexual conduct in private between consenting males over the age of 21, or some lesser age, constituted an interference with a person's right to respect for his private life in convention of article, in contravention, sorry, of Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. The court ruled that such legislation did indeed constitute an interference in the private life of homosexuals. But the reasoning given for this ruling, that is, the normative principles on which it relied, came in for criticism. To quote the court, there can be no denial that some degree of regulation of male homosexual conduct, as indeed of other forms of sexual conduct, by means of the criminal law, can be justified as necessary in a democratic society. The overall, which is a quote from the second paragraph of Article 8, the overall function served by the criminal law in this field is to preserve public order and decency and to protect the citizens from what is offensive or injurious. Furthermore, this necessity for some degree of control may even extend to consensual acts committed in private, notably where there is call to provide sufficient safeguards against exploitation and corruption of others, particularly those who are especially vulnerable because they are young, weak in body or mind, inexperienced or in a state of special physical, official or economic dependence. So that's, um, that, are the, that, that was apart from the um, reasoning of the court. Why was this decision so controversial and has remained so? On the one hand, the court's argument is quite unambiguous since it clearly held that the concept of private life is a concept which covers the physical and moral integrity of the person, including his or her sexual life. Thus, the court decided on the one hand that homosexual acts among consenting adults in private should be free from interference, and also that the freedom to do so constituted a matter of human rights. Yet, 
On the other hand, it is clear that in defending a right to homosexual conduct, the court was relying on a traditional spatial distinction between private and public and was relegating homosexual life to the secrecy of private space. By endorsing the need for this spatial division in the interest of controlling social practices, the court also seemed to remain committed to the notion that public homosexuality is incompatible with public morality and that it can be coercively kept from public view. It is clear that the relevant discourse here is one which views gay men as corrupting public morality due to their deviant behavior, which should therefore be confined to private spaces. These assumptions were rightly criticized by Paul Johnson. I quote, homosexuality as a private manifestation of human personality has been decisive in socializing a European consensus on the protection of private sexual expression. It can also be seen to have encouraged a continued separation of sexual rights from citizenship rights. To ensure, I'm still quoting, to ensure the existence and preservation of full citizenship rights for non-heterosexuals, homosexuality needs to be comprehended outside of the narrow confines of private life associated with Article 8. I think that on the one hand, one should agree with Johnson and others who criticize the court's explanation of its ruling, but on the other hand, it is apparent that Johnson himself is still relying on an overly narrow conception of privacy. The object of his criticism is not the conception of privacy applied by the court, but rather the fact that the court is referring only to the right to privacy. If Johnson were to recognize that a dimensional conception of privacy has the resources to regard homosexuality as both a private matter and one that people are entitled to bring into public space, he would be in a position to criticize the court's reasoning in a different and more plausible way. The right to privacy protects individual autonomy within relationships, independently of whether those relationships are being lived in the private sphere, that is, in the local dimension of privacy, or in public. Since choices concerning one's sexual identity should be seen as private choices, it is normatively most adequate to conceptualize homosexuality as being protected by decisional privacy. I next want to take a brief look at a different but equally famous case, which should also be seen as a case of decisional privacy. And I mean, the first case I just discussed um, has been seen by the court as a case of privacy, but not as a place of decisional privacy, only as local privacy. Yeah, And um, I think there's a mistake in the, next, um, in the next case I'm going to discuss as well. I next want to take a brief look at a different but equally famous case, which should also be seen as a case of decisional privacy. Um, this is the case of the face veil. In SAS versus France, the court held that France was entitled to prohibit the wearing of the burqa in public. This ruling caused a great deal of discussion, uh, also in the papers, I'm sure you've read about that, um, because it was and remains deeply contested whether, as France maintained, the banning of the burqa and the niqab is indeed necessary for the functioning of a democratic society. Remember, that was the second paragraph of, of Article 8 in, in the Convention. This is no doubt a difficult issue. I agree on that. But what is evident throughout the critical commentaries on this case is that it is religious freedom which is here being weighed against the moral texture of life in common. That's a quote from the court's decision. 
uh, moral texture of life in common or democratic uh, living together. Yet, as Jill Marshall, for instance, has pointed out, what should be at issue here is not just religious freedom, but also the right to privacy, properly understood. Again, if we conceive of privacy not only and not primarily as a space, it becomes much clearer and also more plausible that and why this case should be understood as one involving decisional privacy. Of course, there remains the difficult problem of weighing different rights against one another, since none of these rights involved is absolute. But what is at stake is not simply the protection of religious identity when you talk about dress codes, but the empowerment of an individual wanting to live her life autonomously and able to do so in public only if her decisional privacy with respect to her religious beliefs and religious dress is respected and protected. Needless to say, if one believes that the niqab is an, I quote, obvious symbol of oppression, as uh, Alibai Brown says, then neither freedom of religion nor the right to privacy will be able to deliver an argument against prohibition of the face veil. Yeah, if it's an obvious symbol of oppression, then you better prohibit wearing it in public. But I do not think that one should agree with this view. One should at least concede that there can be some degree of autonomy in a woman's decision to wear a niqab or in her recognizing or accepting or acknowledging that this is how she wants to live her life. In another ruling, the court made it clear that it considers individual autonomy as an important principle, if not the central one. I quote, the court considers that the notion of personal autonomy is an important principle underlying the interpretation of its guarantees. Regarding religious dress, an issue of decisional privacy would allow us to recognize that Article 8 is at least as relevant here as Article 9, the freedom of religion. This is just what a normative conception of privacy can serve to show, to show and to justify. At the same time, the traditional idea of privacy as a protected space continues to play a role in the debates on the concept of privacy as well as in the jurisprudence of the court. My next examples are cases that proceed from this traditional idea of a private sphere insofar as they are concerned with the dimension of local or domestic privacy. The question here is whether the court ruled in ways that take seriously the feminist critique of the private sphere as a refuge solely for men, and thereby in ways that remove the sting of that critique. How important it is to construe and develop this private protected space as one inhabited by women and men alike is attested to by the fact that marital rape was made a criminal offence only in very recent times in Germany in the year 1997. The feminist critique applies perfectly here. Instances of domestic violence, such as marital rape, went legally unrecognized because they were taken to belong within the protected sphere of privacy. The legal reform in Germany did come about without any appeal to the European Court of Human Rights, but it's clear that this form of, viola of violence contravenes not only Article 2, everyone's right to life shall be protected by law, but also the protection of private life in Article 8. <coughs> the jurisprudence concerning Article 8 can serve as a corrective to the feminist critique by demonstrating that it is possible to appeal to Article 8 to demand the protection of one's private sphere, including its protection against domestic violence. In line with the court's ruling, 
rulings, domestic violence can be construed as a very specific type of violence. This is why appealing to Article 2 alone would not be apt in these cases. Only the protection of private life can do justice to the special kinds of vulnerability that characterize intimate relationships and domestic settings. As an example, let me point to the case of Kalucha versus Hungary, which was decided by the European Court in 2012. I quote, the applicant unwillingly shared her apartment with her violent common-law husband, pending numerous civil disputes concerning the ownership of the flat. She alleged in particular that the Hungarian authorities had failed to protect her from constant physical and psychological abuse in her home. The court concluded that the Hungarian authorities had failed to fulfill their positive obligations in violation of Article 8 uh, of the Convention. It found in particular that even though the applicant had lodged criminal complaints against her partner for assault, had repeatedly requested restraining orders to be brought against him and had brought civil proceedings to order his eviction from the flat, the authorities had not taken sufficient measures for her effective protection. What we encounter here is precisely the idea that private space must be protected space not only for men but equally for women. This also means that the family and family life do not constitute some extra-legal, pre-institutional space, but are subject to the same basic rights that apply in all other areas of society. In this regard, there is no difference between the private and the public spheres. And I quote Rawls, who writes in Political Liberalism, If the so-called private sphere is a space alleged to be exempt from justice, then there is no such thing. To be sure, a fully traditional conception of privacy and of private family life is still in existence even if outside but very close to the jurisdiction of the European Union. Witness the recent decision of the Duma, signed by President Putin, to decriminalize domestic violence in so-called lesser cases and to sanction it with fines at most. I will leave it at these brief remarks to finally turn to the cases having to do with informational privacy that is, with the dimension of privacy that concerns information or data about a person. This dimension of privacy has become more urgent over the past years as new forms of data processing have created novel threats to the freedom of individuals and to the life of democratic societies. It is therefore especially important to clarify the underlying normative principles in this area so as to allow us to develop transparent criteria for new cases of privacy violation. How central an issue this is for European human rights is revealed by the fact that the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union, passed in 2000, distinguishes the protection of data, informational privacy in the narrow sense, from the protection of privacy. In addition to Article 7 concerning in the Charter concerning the protection of private life, it introduces a separate provision for the protection of personal data, the new Article 8, departing from all earlier European and other international declarations. Paragraph 1 of that article states that everyone has the right to the protection of personal data concerning him or her. Introducing this separate article is of course very helpful with regard to protecting the right to informational privacy. And I already mentioned above that we need to be able to control what information about us is available to others or to have at least reasonable expectations 
well-grounded expectations about which info, what information is available to others in the interest of retaining control over our self-presentations and over the various different social worlds we occupy. Absent such control, persons are unable to effectively oversee what Goffman, already 40 years ago, has called their presentation of self, which in turn amounts to a curtailment of their autonomy. If you can't control your self-presentations, um, then your autonomy is restricted. Due to the advances in wiretapping technology, but also because of increased CCTV surveillance, there are by now a whole number of cases having to do with informational privacy in the court. The best known among them are Class versus Germany and Malone versus UK, both of which concern the secret wiretapping of a person's telephone calls by state agency. They were both uh, very widely discussed in the papers as well. My primary interest here is twofold. First, the court argues that informational privacy constitutes a central aspect of privacy and that the secret surveillance of citizens without their consents is therefore in itself a violation of informational privacy. But what seems even more important to me is that secondly, the court is arguing quite explicitly that privacy must be lived in public. This, I believe, amounts to an application of the normative dimensional conceptions of privacy. The critique of the traditional liberal distinction, which claims that the liberal conception cannot do justice to the fact that one's private life may be partly led in public, is not apt here, as the court argues precisely that private life sometimes must take place in public. One of the best known cases here in this context is von Hanover versus Germany, and I'm sure you've heard about that because it involves a Princess Caroline from um, Monaco. Monaco, thank you. I wanted to say Mallorca, but it sounded uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, um, it's, it's so well known, partly because the court here made the consideration very explicit. I quote, there's therefore a zone of interaction of a person with others, even in a public context, which may fall within the scope of private life. Informational privacy and local privacy, as a protection against domestic violence, are not in conflict here. Both are aspects or dimensions of privacy which are needed to enable individuals to be autonomous in very different respects. This becomes clear once we adopt the dimensional conception of privacy. There is, however, a third aspect of informational privacy that is also important here. I therefore want to briefly consider the significance of informational privacy for democracy. Without the protection of privacy, citizens cannot make use of their democratic liberties. The German Federal Constitutional Court already recognized in its ruling on the 1983 Census Act that the right to individual self-determination is an essential element of the common good. I quote, Persons who assume, for example, that attendance of an assembly or participation in a citizen's interest group will be officially recorded and that this could expose them to risks will possibly waive exercise of their corresponding fundamental rights. This would not only restrict the possibilities for personal development of those individuals, but also be detrimental to the public good, since self-determination is an elementary prerequisite for the functioning of a free democratic society predicated on the freedom of action and participation of its members. Many theorists have pointed out that there is a connection between the protection of privacy, understood as the protection of individual autonomy, and the protection of democracy, 
Hughes speaks of a bulwark against totalitarianism. Spirosimites characterizes the right to privacy as a constitutive element of a democratic society. Again, we can cite an important ruling here, one of the most discussed cases in this context. Um, I mentioned it um, above already, class versus Germany. The court argued that the contracting states do not enjoy an unlimited discretion to subject persons within their jurisdictions to secret surveillance. It's a quote. So no unlimited discretion to subject persons within their jurisdictions to secret surveillance. The court, being aware of the danger such a law poses of undermining or even destroying democracy on the ground of defending it, affirms that the contracting states may not, in the, same of the, in the name of the struggle against espionage and terrorism, adopt whatever measures they deem appropriate. The unobserved spaces that we need in order to be able to act autonomously and authentically within the public sphere could not exist if we were constantly subject to, or even just potential, observation and social control. Indeed, they would already cease to exist if we could no longer be certain who may gain access to our data and what data are being collected about us in the first place. When one cannot be sure that one is not being observed, uncontrolled, one can no longer engage in open and autonomous critical debate with others. Actually, um, I don't know whether you read in the papers that um, the Trump administration has um, suggested to, um, uh, to, to, to um, what's the word, um, to legalize the question of um, your passwords for your computer and your mobile phone uh, to legalize the fact that at the border people can access your computer and your uh, phones. I don't know whether you read about that. And there's um, a letter, an open letter to the Trump, I mean to the president, um, by like 100 scholars, privacy scholars in the United States, who argue precisely on the basis of the connection between information, privacy and autonomy. And I can read it out uh, if you want to. But it's really interesting to see how important, I mean, how politically important this, um, this connection and this, this argument is. Okay, let me, let me come to a close. I have tried to combine two different perspectives. On the one hand, a normative perspective that seeks to explain and articulate in a consistent, systematic, and plausible way what the meaning and value of privacy are for individuals as well as for the democratic society, given the different meanings and social contexts of privacy that we find in our social life. And on the other hand, a perspective provided by the jurisprudence of a court that, in making decisions about actual cases, is required to interpret the written law regarding the human right to privacy. I hope that it has become clear that a unified conception of privacy can help us in understanding, interpreting and criticizing the court's rulings and thus to protect the various distinct dimensions of both male and female individuals' right to privacy against threats and violations. I have argued that it is useful to point out that underlying the different dimensions of the right to privacy is a single principle, the principle of freedom or autonomy. The answer to the question what homosexuality or the burqa have to do with privacy is then plain. Certain aspects of our lives as free and autonomous persons are not possible without the protection of privacy. Such an underlying principle seems to be highly important for the practice of adjudication. When aspects of our lived reality change, 
so do the social norms regulating them. In assessing these changing norms, a principle of this sort can play a guiding role. When norms of privacy change, the criterion for evaluating this change, this change is whether and how the autonomy of persons continues to enjoy the kind of protection that is a precondition of its existence. At the outset, I have said that the right to privacy occupies a natural place, not only within the system of human rights, but also within the constitutions of the European states, as well as in their legislation. We are now in a position to understand why this is just as it should be. This right is indispensable since without it, certain essential dimensions of our freedom and autonomy could not be realized. Thank you for your patience.